Luke chapter 5, verse 27. That's where we're going to begin today. And for those of you that, that are following us either online or here in the room, we use the New King James Version of the Bible. So that's what we're going to be teaching from. There's copies back there if you need one. And it's an awesome section. I've already hinted to it just during worship of what this whole section is about. It's the fact that the Lord Jesus has come. He's delivered us from the Sabbath. He's delivered us from the law. He's delivered us from all those things that were really intended to be good for us. But man had taken them and made them into something they were never supposed to be. And instead of bringing us into the presence of God, they actually burdened us down. They shackled us in a way to where, man, we were never going to be able to please the Lord, it would seem. And so the, the purpose of the law was a good thing. It would show us that, hey, someone holy made this law. <laughs> There's no way a man made this thing because it accuses man all over it. <laughs> but the fact was you'd come to the law and say, man, there's someone has to deliver us from this. And see, so while the people were waiting for the Messiah, thinking that the Messiah was coming to, to deliver them from Rome, the Messiah was coming to deliver us from the law. He was coming to make a way for us to have peace with God the Father. Amen? Amen? And see, that's what's awesome about this, is as we look at this passage, Jesus has now been teaching. He's been doing miracles in this book. But there's an opposition against him because the religious leaders, the ritualistic religious system of Judaism that was there in Jerusalem, they wanted it to remain that way because there was power in that for the men that would run it. There was a safety and comfort in it to say, look, it, I can live however I want. As long as I go to temple, as long as I go and check the box on these things, I'm a good person. I'm doing what would please God in some way. But yet you could never fully do it. And so that's the thing. It, it, it just left you feeling shackled and burdened, but not fulfilled with joy. It left you convicted and condemned to where the Lord Jesus comes and in his spirit convicts you, but leads you to salvation, leads you to a relationship with the Father. And so this is what we're looking at today. Um, if you're at Luke chapter 5, that's where we're going to begin. It's going to be at chapter, chapter 5, verse 27. It says, after these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. And see, right from the beginning right there, those first two verses, this is something that is so awesome because we know that this is Matthew, according to Matthew chapter 9. He's called Levi in this section. But it said that after these things, we have to remember some of the things that Jesus has just done. He's healed a paralytic. He cleansed a leper. And he cast out the demons out of a demoniac. And some have said, some commentators, right, have said, well, now he's strong enough to face the most cruel, most evil, wicked thing you could ever encounter, a tax man, right? Like, here we are, man. We're going to encounter just the, that, that heaviness that is dealing with the IRS and whatnot. But in all seriousness, we look at this section, we have to remember that in this culture, a tax collector was like the most vile traitor that you could come against as a Jew because it was a Jewish man, in this case, Levi, a Jewish man working for Rome with Rome muscle behind him. So you just think about what that looks like to your fellow man. You're like, dude, we're being oppressed by Rome. We want a Messiah to come save us. These guys are ruling over us and you're joining their side so that you can be wealthy and comfortable in the sense of financial wealth. But someone like, like Matthew or Levi, we'll be referring to him as both names here. He goes by either, right? Um, in this case, a tax collector couldn't even be called into court because they're like, immediately, he's a liar. <laughs> we can't even hear his, like, don't even regard a tax collector. It was said at one point, I think it was David Guzik had written about this. He said there was church, uh, someone in church history had mentioned that there was once a monument made for a tax collector that was honest. So you think about that. You're like, they made a monument just because he didn't cheat people. Like he didn't do anything necessarily good, but he just was so different than the rest of the tax collectors. And so I think about that and you have Levi here, Matthew, he's working at the tax office. And most people would walk by and see Matthew and go, man, that's a traitor. That guy is a loser. That guy is terrible. And there was hatred towards him because of the fact that he became a tax collector for Rome. And see, we have to understand how this works. You would willingly choose to become a tax collector for Rome because there was money involved. 
you would say, man, I'm going to bid upon that region, upon that lot. And that way, like there's a set taxation for Rome. Let's call it just for fun. Let's call it 10%. Who knows what it was? But if it's 10% that Rome gets, a tax collector could walk up and say, hey, you have to pay Rome 15%. You wouldn't know any better. He would pocket that extra 5%. He basically, he's the middleman. He keeps the top portion. And so they were known to charge just exorbitant above, uh, exorbitantly above the taxation they should have been collecting. And so it's like, man, we know you're cheating us. We know you're robbing us, but we have to pay you because Rome is behind you. So many things involved why you would hate Matthew as a Jew. And so he wasn't allowed to go to synagogue. <laughs> He wasn't allowed to go. He was immediately outcasted from his family. If you became a tax collector for Rome, it's like, dude, you're working for the other team. You can't be here. But it's so awesome because it says that Jesus saw Levi. It says that in verse 27. That word for saw, it's another one of those words. We talked about it last week with Easter, the Easter count. There were like three different Greek words for the word saw. And in this case, it's a contemplative, attentive consideration. So Jesus is looking at Levi, and as most people would walk by and see, oh, that's a traitor, that's a loser. Jesus stops and says, I'm staring at this guy and considering something deeper that everyone else is missing. This, I hope, speaks to all of us. It speaks to me because I often feel, what in the world does the Lord have any business using me and calling me to follow him, considering the things that I have done, <laughs> considering the things that I have said? considering the things that I've committed to in my past. And most people would agree with that. They'd walk by and go, that guy cannot serve the Lord, period, if they knew me from that time of my life. Even now, maybe, some days, they might say, that guy's not qualified for such things. But Jesus stops and he sees at the core, if we are willing to go to him, we will find life. He says, come and follow me. And I love it because as he says this, He's in Capernaum, according to Matthew 9. We don't get that detail here, but this is, remember, Capernaum became Jesus' hometown. And it's the place where he did lots of miracles. There is no doubt that Matthew has heard at this point that Jesus is like, at the very least, this powerful prophet magician guy. But maybe he's the Messiah. Matthew was raised Jewish, but he's deflected of sorts to Rome by working for them. He knows the promises of a Messiah coming. We know that because he wrote the book of Matthew and it's all messianic, right? So he knew this thing in his heart. When Jesus comes to him and looks at him with that loving desire for him to follow him, it's so awesome because Matthew actually says, dude, I'm going to follow him. I've heard the things about Jesus and it's almost as if Matthew was waiting for this moment. You know, you can be making all the money in the world. You can have all of the things of the world, but when you don't serve the Lord, you don't know the joy that comes from belonging to Jesus. I mean, how many times have we heard the story that people have everything, but they're still empty? Yet you have a woman that has two mites and she gives it all to the Lord. And the Lord's like, that's what it's about. (laughs) And that's the thing. It was never about how much you can bring to the Lord. It's about committing everything to the Lord. And see, that's what's awesome here. Jesus said in Luke 9, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? That's Luke 9, 23 to 25. And the reality is when Matthew left his tax office, there was no going back to that tax office. Because now it's it's tough, right? Because he was already a traitor to the Jews for working for the Romans. The minute he walks out of that tax office, he's a traitor for Rome, (laughs) How dare you leave the like blessed protection of Rome? You're leaving our, our security, the financial security, all of those comforts. And you would say, why would someone do that? Because Jesus has called them. That's it, right? And I mean, we're living this life, man. I mean, I, it's funny. I'm looking around. I'm like, we live this life day by day still in 2021. <laughs> we have the comforts of this world. We have money. We have the jobs. We have the... Whatever those things are that like we go, man, how could I ever leave this? Well, when Jesus looks at you and says, hey, it's time to follow me, that's a gnarly thing. And you go, what am I going to do? If I try to keep all this stuff, I'm going to lose it all in eternity. And it's I got to be careful because I know there's a lot of people online that are my fellow believers. And we go, well, I chose to follow Jesus 12 years ago, right? Well, here's the reality. Jesus is calling us to follow him daily. 
to take up that cross daily. There's something that happens when you walk on the field at Harvest Crusade and say, yes, I belong to Jesus. But now what are you going to do about it? And day by day, are we living for the things of this world or are we living for that calling that Jesus has placed upon our life? And see, when those things of the world get either taken away from us or we lie them down, we realize, man, this is what it's about. It's about trusting in Jesus. And that's where joy is. And see, Matthew is wise enough to say, man, I'm going to leave all of the advantages of this position, this hollow lifestyle of worldly living, and I'm going to go follow Jesus because I realize my need for something greater than this. I think that's what it comes down to. Pastor Joe at Pomona Valley used to always say that, that desperation is the beginning of worship. And it's so interesting because when you're not desperate in any way, you have no need to worship anyone, right? Worship the Lord, at least. You're like, no, I'm good. If I'm going to worship anyone, I worship myself because I'm providing for myself. But then desperation starts to hit. Again, how do I get out of this situation? How do I get out of this thing that I've gotten myself into? And see, Matthew's thing would be a thing that most people would say, dude, I want that. I want money. I want affluence. I want all those things. But Matthew lived it and said, this is not what it's cracked up to be. I need out. And it's like he was waiting, waiting for Jesus to come get him. And he just says, hey, come follow me. And he followed him. (laughs) And I think the important thing to note on this is that he's not sobbing as he leaves. (laughs) He's not crying about it. He's like, oh, this is just the worst. I have to leave my money. I had to leave Rome. I had to. He lived the life a new man is empty. I need to follow Jesus. And actually, on the contrary, look at verse 29. It says, then Levi or Matthew, however you want to refer to him gave him, speaking of Jesus, a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So we have to pause it there because I love the juxtaposition of him leaving what most people in the world would say, dude, you're leaving the greatest thing. You're leaving money. You're leaving security. You're leaving protection, comforts. What's the next verse? He's throwing a giant feast. (laughs) The word in the Greek is megas. It's like, this is a huge deal. He's throwing an all out, just banging party for Jesus, right? And he says, I'm not sad about this at all. I'm not going home and, and weeping over this decision. I have a joy in my life that I wanna share with everyone else I know. And it's awesome because it turns out the only people he knows are other tax collectors. <laughs> and that's typical, right? Like, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33. It says, do not be deceived. Like evil company corrupts good habits. But there's something that goes to the fact that like, you're going to keep the company that matches your lifestyle. And so that's another thing as believers, like there should be a change. And I believe that Matthew is like, look, it, I'm going to throw this party because yes, I'm going away with Jesus. But this is the invite to all of my friends to come with us. That's a different thing than, than, than saying like, oh, I'm so sad. It's a goodbye party. I'm so, it's like, no, I want all you to come with me. And I hope we know this. When we come to the Lord, the first thing we do is invite all of our friends. But there is that line where after that point, we don't see Matthew hanging out with a lot of tax collectors in the sense of like, he's just staying with them. He's still with a bunch of ragtag dudes. I mean, the, the dirty dozen as Pastor Xavier used to call them, right? <laughs> it's like this group of guys that you're like, what are they doing with Jesus? Well, Jesus saw something in them and said, if you follow me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sanctify you. I'm going to make you something that actually can serve the kingdom. And anyone is welcome to come. But if you leave that to go stay with that group you were with originally, that's not going to work over there. Not everyone gets to like come with you when you follow Jesus. You hope they do. And you invite them to. And you're still almost at like arm's length, right? You keep them close enough to where they can hear the gospel. But that fellowship is broken in a way. But see, Matthew's not crying about that. He's not going, oh, man, I'm going to lose my tax collecting friends. He's like, dude, I got Jesus. <laughs> and what I'm hoping is that all of you see that you need Jesus too and come with me, come with us. Hear the word of the Lord and follow him, right? I mean, Jesus is sitting there with them. So, I mean, Jesus is literally going to be speaking with these guys. They're going to see the fact that Jesus desires them as much as he desired Matthew. It's their choice if they want to walk and come to him for life, as John 5, 40 talks about. It says, you will have life if you come to me. You don't come to him, you have death. That's the reality. That's the wages of sin. But when you come to Jesus, you have life. And that's what Matthew is telling these guys. Hey, come on, let's have a party. Let's celebrate the fact that, man, I I found Jesus. (laughs) Jesus found me, however we want to phrase that, right? It's a mutual decision. Jesus says, follow me. He says, yeah, I'll follow you. Two parts, I guess, right? 
And he's there and he's like, this is awesome, guys. Come with me. But here are these religious leaders yet again. <laughs> They're peering in. And I think it was on The Chosen, uh, my one of my favorite shows I keep mentioning, right? They peer into like Jesus eating with these guys and they're kind of like looking in the window and they're just like, oh man, what are, these guys are the worst, right? Like, what are they doing? They're eating with tax collectors. And the idea is like, why would anyone associate with these terrible, terrible people? That's the Pharisees, I think. Because remember, the Pharisees do not want Rome anymore. They're not the Herodians. They don't, they don't support Herod. They do not want Roman rule. And they're like, if this guy says he's the Messiah, yet he's sitting there eating with tax collectors, he's basically eating with the enemy. And to eat in that culture, right? I mean, that's like this intimate act of just like we're becoming one in a way as we eat and dip the bread in the same things. See, today we don't think about that. We sit in a restaurant with all kinds of people and don't really, like that was a big deal. And so they're like, this is gross. Jesus says the Messiah and he's hanging out with people that are the enemy of what would seem like our Messiah. This is, they're basically just trying to discredit Jesus from being the Messiah with this statement. They're like he can't be the one. And so as they're looking at him and saying this, it's interesting because Jesus' whole point for coming, remember it's Luke 19.10 is the theme verse of this book. It's the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the theme verse of the book of Luke. And see, he's sitting here as the perfect human as Luke depicts him. He's not judging these people in the sense of like, oh, dude, I can't come near you. Let me be clear. If they reject Jesus Christ, there will be judgment for sins. But these people cannot say they did not have an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. He's in their midst. He's sitting with them. He's eating with them. And this is the reality of what Jesus still does today. He says, I'm in your midst. I'm ready to have you follow me. But you have to choose to come after me. Amen. And for us, even as believers, we still have to choose that day by day. And I don't, I don't even want to get into like, well, is it, did we choose? Is he choosing? All these things. There's a reality where I know personally I have to abide in the Lord Jesus. If I choose tomorrow not to, A, my joy is going to go away that I have in the Lord. And B, that's not what I was created to do. I was created to daily take up the cross and follow Jesus. And so we see that Matthew is partaking and there's some tax collectors sitting with him. But meanwhile, those guys that are supposed to be the righteous religious leaders, they're completely missing the point of Jesus's presence. And think about this. Jesus is the son of God. He's God, the son. They're in the midst of God. And they're like, oh, that guy's just wrong. Talk about self-righteousness. God is wrong and I am right. But this is the same thing our flesh does, that the world does today. Oh, that's not what God meant with his word. That's not what God actually would believe. God is behind the times according to his word, right? He's on the wrong side of history, which is funny. He's outside of history because he's outside of time and space. But we make these, these statements as if we are smarter than God. And that's basically what these religious men are doing. They're like, dude, we practice all the rituals. This can't be God. This can't be the Messiah. And so look at what Jesus responds in 31. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I mean, this is just like one of those statements I think most people know about Jesus. It's one of those big ones. It's almost like the same as, you know, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give unto the Lord what belongs to the Lord, right? In this case, it's like so many ways you can interpret this in a bad way, right? You can take this out of context and say he was calling the religious righteous well. He says, oh, I didn't come for you guys because you guys are well. That's not what he's saying. <laughs> Let's be clear what he's saying. There's two statements. One, he is the great physician. He says, there's a fact I am a physician who can make people better. <laughs> the sick need me. But people that think they're well, this is the problem. He's saying, you guys don't even know that I am a physician. You don't believe I'm a physician because you don't believe you're sick. You won't even come and, and inquire of me. There's no desperation to worship. The idea is, man, we're good. I'm guilty of this. I do this all the time. I never like going to doctors. I hate going to doctors. My wife gets so mad at me because I refuse to go to the doctor, right? I'm like, I'm good. Guess what happens eventually? It's like when you don't change the oil in your car, eventually it just blows up and you've got to go to the mechanic. In this case, these guys are like, oh, we're so good. We look at them. Those guys are unhealthy. We're healthy. And Jesus is like, you guys have no idea that the great physician is in your presence and that you're sick. You think you're well. He goes, but here's what's going to happen. I'm here and the sick are going to come to me and the sick are going to repent. 
See, this is the reality. To be well, to be made well, is equivalent with repenting. But in order to repent, you got to turn from something. The self-righteous religious leaders go, we have nothing to turn from. <laughs> We're perfect. He's like, this is why you will never know that I'm the great physician. And this is why you don't understand why I'm sitting with a room full of sick people. <laughs> and it reminds me of when Jesus touched a leper. He didn't become unclean. The leper became clean. When Jesus sits with the unrighteous, they don't, he doesn't become unrighteous. They become righteous. But the self-righteous say, I don't want to go participate. Now I'm already good. Well, you don't even realize you're missing it. You are actually unrighteous. And it's this wild thing because at the end of the day, remember, these guys took 10 commandments and turned them into 613 laws. And they kept track of every one of them. And they're like, we're doing what we need to be doing. We're checking the boxes on these things. We're still going to do this. But God, the son is in their presence. And they're like, we don't need you. This is terrifying as a guy that does church for a living, <laughs> as a guy that's done ministry for years, how often we think ministry and church and church membership is the thing that makes us righteous. Let me be clear. Doing church in my home does not make me righteous. <laughs> doing worship doesn't make me righteous. Serving in children's ministry or ushering or any of these things, that doesn't make us righteous. Jesus is our righteousness. There's nothing good in us. No, not nothing, Right. But when we realize that Jesus is our righteous, we respond by following that call. Amen. And so it's that thing where these guys won't respond to his call. They're like, we're good because we do all this righteous stuff. And Jesus is like, man, you guys don't understand how far your hearts are from me. You don't even realize how wicked you are. And see, Psalm 51, 17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And see, these guys don't have that broken heart. They're offering all these kinds of sacrifices that they think are holy. <laughs> but the Lord says, no, we don't need those. We need your heart first. Praise the Lord for, for sacrifices of service that come out of a, a right heart. But again, those aren't the things that save us. It's that heart response to who Jesus is that saves us. And so... As this is happening, I look at this and I think they were so close, again, to life. They were so close. They were exposed to Jesus Christ. But yet they wouldn't hear. Yet Matthew, <laughs> Matthew hears, follow me. And he's like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm ready to go. Because there was desperation. There was a willingness. And that way the Lord works to prep our hearts for that season when the Lord enters our life is the coolest thing. But yet when our heart, when our heart is hard, man, that invitation of the Lord just bounces right off, right? Satan comes and just takes it away like the parable of the sower. And we just want to make sure, man, is our heart right before the Lord? Is it soft? Is it ready to receive the Lord? And that takes a daily prayer. One of my prayers every morning is, Lord, give me a heart today to serve you. <laughs> like it's, it's, no one wakes up and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk away from Jesus today. It's a gradual thing. It's, it's this little, it's, they call it backsliding, right? You, you slowly slide backwards and then all of a sudden you're back where you were. God forbid, it's a day-by-day -day choice to take up that cross and to say, today I'm going to serve Jesus, amen? And so look at verse 33. It says, then they said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. So we'll pause it there because the first kind of the accusation now, this is another attempt to discredit Jesus and his disciples. The first one in this section was, hey, you're not the Messiah because you're hanging out with like the enemy, the tax collectors, and you're not righteous because you hang out with unrighteous which Jesus explained, you're totally mistaken on this, right? Now, in this case, they say, hey, you're not that holy because at least John and his guys, remember, they're talking about John the Baptist. So there's some level where they, they said John the Baptist is holy in their argument. I don't know if they believe that, but they used it as an argument. They said the Pharisees and John the Baptist, them and all their disciples, they fast all the time. We never see you fasting. We never see your disciples fasting. And see, what they meant by this was that 
Remember what fasting for the Pharisees, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, right? He said, don't look like the Pharisees. Those guys walk around acting like they are just dying because they're fasting, hoping that someone will notice, right? His very words literally said, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. See what Jesus is saying, when you fast in me, it's going to look like joy. Because when you fast from the things of the world, you're relying upon Jesus. Like that's why we fast as believers, right? It's like, hey, Lord, I need you to speak into my life. I need you to guide me on something. Let's say we're fasting from food. That's the most common one. We'd say, anytime I get those hunger pains, I would go, oh, it's time to pray. It's a reminder that I need to rely on the Lord, right? So when you get hit with those things, I'm going to rely on the Lord. And it's for his glory to speak to me that I may glorify him, right? And walk in his ways. But even in that, you're joyous about it because you're like, dude, I can't believe the creator of the universe is speaking to me through this fasting. Meanwhile, you had the Pharisees who had no relationship with God, believed that if they look like they're fasting, then they look holy, and that that misery somehow makes them righteous in the eyes of God. How sad to think that, man, if we do these ritualistic things in a more miserable way, we'll look more holy. And see, their accusation of Jesus was, dude, you're having feast, joyous, happy feast with Levi the tax collector at his house, a bunch of unrighteous people. We're over here miserably fasting. We're way more holy than you. And it's so sad because I think sometimes we think about like church and religion of like, dude, you just can't have fun. If you have fun, you're doing it wrong, man. It's supposed to be like holy and somber or something. It's like, God forbid (laughs) that people think that when we come to Jesus, life is just like over and miserable and no fun. I have had the most fun, adventurous times in my life following Jesus. I mean, geez, I've moved to Texas two different times because of this, right? Like, this is crazy. I've gone and I've gone all over the place doing all kinds of things. I've gone to Mexico and taught a study with a translator. That makes that's crazy to me, right? I don't speak Spanish. What am I doing in Mexico? Like back in the day, if someone had told me I was in Mexico, it would have been for bad reasons. But the Lord leads you to Mexico to serve him, and you're like, this is such a cool adventure. I think it is because we have guys in Mexico from Pomona Valley right now, and they're just texting me. They're just having a blast, but they're serving the Lord. And I go, the world doesn't understand, man. There's so much emptiness in that routine that we do to go to the club, to go do these just self-centered things. But when you come to the Lord, man, you're serving the Lord. And in that sense, it's fasting because you're fasting from the things of the world. You're relying upon the Lord. You're serving the Lord instead of serving yourself. And there's joy that comes out of that. And you go, man, this is just the most exciting thing. But these guys are like, why aren't they miserable like us? Because if you're miserable, you'd be really holy. And I got to be honest, I look at like interpretations of religion on TV. I like, I don't know, shows like The Office or whatever. They'll show a church. And it's so like, I don't even know. It's so like, like empty feeling and rigid feeling. And it grosses me out as a believer to go, that's what the entertainment industry thinks church looks like. And don't get me wrong. I get it. There are some churches that look like that. But man, the churches that belong to Jesus, there should be a joy and an excitement in everything that we're doing. And those religious people that are like those, I don't know, that stiffness, that rigidness that's there of of certain denominations and groups, I think. They go, man, why are you guys having so much fun? Why are you playing that loud worship music? (laughs) Why are you doing it? It's just all these things that come out. And it's like, because we're joyful. Again, all things in order. It doesn't mean we're barking. It doesn't mean we're swinging from chandeliers. It doesn't mean we're doing crazy, goofy things out of order. But there's a joy that comes with serving the Lord that we never knew before. And now that we know the Lord, man, it just boggles the minds of those that have never experienced it. Amen. Amen. And that's what I'm seeing here. And he says, look, when the bridegroom is, is there at the wedding, at the feast, you can't tell the people to fast. The bridegroom's here. It's a celebration. And see, this is the thing in their culture. Weddings weren't like a three-hour event at the Hilton, right? This was like a week-long celebration. And in one week, think about it. You'd have a Sabbath that would come up. You may have some certain feasts that come up and certain regulations of what you can carry on Sabbath day and what you can't, right? Like, are you allowed to carry your wife over the threshold on the Sabbath day? No, not according to the law. Those things were actually removed and it was deemed lawful for the, the, in a wedding feast, anything that detracts from the joy of the wedding feast 
is allowed to be like forgotten for that week. So that's interesting. So Jesus says, look at the bridegroom's here. The reason that we're not doing the things that you think we should is because there's joy and we are celebrating the fact that I am here. And I love that he calls himself the bridegroom because in, in the future epistles and whatnot, right? The church is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. And so he refers to himself. If anyone ever wants to say, oh, the church isn't the bride. Well, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. So who's he marrying, right? Um, in this case, he also says, but don't get wrong. There's, there's going to be a time when the bridegroom is taken away. That statement of taken away, that's a violent phrase. It's like he doesn't necessarily want to go. Someone's going to come and get him. We studied this for Good Friday last week. The reality is that his life cultivated all the way to the cross. Like that's what it, that's what it eventually resulted in. And he knew it was coming. Now, his disciples stand there listening to him like, okay, he's going to go away somewhere. All right. They still don't get it. We know that. But we can look back at that statement. And he's telling them flat out. The bridegroom that, that, that's here that these guys are rejoicing over, he's going to be taken away. And what's crazy is like, you guys are going to be the one that takes him away. You're so mad about the joy. Well, you're eventually going to think you succeed at taking this joy. But I love it because when we, when we studied this, we talked about the fact that everyone was sorrowful and mournful. But John 16, 20, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So just when man thinks he wins at the cross, just when Satan thinks he wins at the cross, Colossians 2 talks about it. Like Jesus made a public spectacle of all of it, reigning over it, resurrecting it three days later. And I just love that, man. Like the fact that Jesus says, listen, this joy you're trying to fight against, you'll never beat it. I am that joy. You can come to me and put your faith in me and you will know that joy as well. But if you don't put your faith in me, you'll never know that joy and you're going to get destroyed by the wages of your sin. And let's be clear, I feel like every time we talk about hell and destruction and judgment, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41 and 46, that hell is a very real place. But he also said that it was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made for man, but there's two, there's two places. And our free will in this eternity says, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Why in the world would we spend eternity with Jesus if we want nothing to do with him? There's only two places, in his presence and away from his presence. But the reason we don't want to spend time with Jesus is because we don't understand the joy that comes in Jesus. We don't understand the, the freedom, the forgiveness, the grace that's found in Jesus. When we understand that, we want nothing but to spend eternity with Jesus. And man, these guys were refusing to see their need for that. And I pray that anyone that refuses to see their need today, this is the reality. There's only so much time allotted to us. The book of James says life is like a vapor. And I'll tell you, life goes quickly. And I believe the Lord is coming even quicker. <laughs> so it's time to repent of your sins. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, you need to do that today. Today is the day of salvation. This, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Amen. And so Jesus gives them two more parables to express this. Look, look at verse 36. It says, then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece of a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled. And the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. And so what Jesus is saying here, we know parables were like his favorite way of teaching. He would teach the word of God and he relied on the word, but then he would give parables. And we know it's just, it's basically an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? It's something that comes alongside something else, that word parable, right? We know paralegal next to a lawyer. We know paramedic next to a medic parable. It's a story next to a story to kind of express the issue. And so he says, first of all, no one takes an, a, a, a piece from a new garment to fix an old one, right? Well, think about this. You have this brand, you're like, dude, I got this old shirt with this tear in it. I'm going to go buy a brand new $50 shirt. And I'm going to cut a hole in that new shirt. <laughs> Take a piece of that thing, try to put it on the old shirt, and then hope that makes it better. Essentially, Jesus is like, you just ruined two shirts. <laughs> Neither of them are good shirts now. You have a new one with a hole. You have an old one with this mis mismatched pattern going this patchwork piece of garment that is embarrassing to wear. 
we can't put these two things together. And remember, he's talking about the fact that they're like, why aren't you doing the things we think are religious? And he's basically saying that old way of thinking, the old way of doing things that, by the way, was the man-made version of God's things, right? They, remember, they took 10 laws and turned into 613. So we're not talking about God's perfect law. We're talking about man's interpretation thereof. He says, that thing cannot hold what I am coming to do. That thing cannot work. And as a matter of fact, it'll ruin the new thing that I'm doing if we try to fit it into the old thing. Same with the wineskins, right? I don't know much about wine, but I read a little bit that the wine has to ferment and when it does it, release gases and the gases will actually blow out and break the brittle old wineskin. You need a new stretchy wineskin, right? That's, that's my two minute version of <laughs> explaining that, but I'm sure some wine connoisseur could explain that better. But the reality is you have this old thing and when you pour that new wine in there, both of it's going to be ruined because you, you don't want to drink your wine off the ground, like, you know, and your thing's broken. Now you have nothing. You've ruined the wine container. It's all bad news. Same thing as the garments. And as Jesus is explaining this, they must be thinking like, who is this guy to say that his way is better than what they thought was God's way? But the answer was as simple as this. You're mad that we have joy. Don't you at least want to come and taste and see that the Lord is good? You're mad that we have joy? You can participate too. Like haters going to hate, right? Like, come on, come on into the party. It's like, no, we don't want it because we're holy. It's like, well, you're going to miss out. That old thing, and here's the reality. When I pour that new thing, because that new thing will be poured out, it's going to destroy the old. That old thing's not going to work. And here's the deal. When he talks about God's law, remember, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish it or to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus never broke the perfect law of God, but he routinely broke that man-made law that said, this is holiness. This is righteousness. And see, this happens today. I think many people in the world will say things like, well, we think the church should do this if they're really holy. They're not part of the church, by the way, people that say these things. They've never actually read the Bible for what it says. They've never put their faith in Jesus Christ. They don't know joy. But they say, we're miserable over here. We're oppressed. We're frustrated. We're shackled down. And it's not going to change until you guys get with us. You want us to be just like you? <laughs> shackled and oppressed and frustrated? Why don't you come join this party? <laughs> we're happy. We're a big old mix of all kinds of different people. <laughs> Different backgrounds, different races, different eco, social economic backgrounds, different education levels, all of these things. And Jesus somehow takes those things that make no sense being together and he just melds them perfectly as we trust in him. The reality of this is that the world, I'm not saying they would do this, but if the world all today put their faith in Jesus Christ, there would actually be world peace and unity. <laughs> That's the wild thing. The answer is the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean everyone believes that. And I know someone will tell me, well, you just believe that because the Bible. Well, yes, that's why I believe it. The Bible. <laughs> you can believe whatever you want. But when you don't even have a book of thousands and thousands of years, if you just want to call it a book, these arguments aren't even supported by such things. At least my arguments are supported with thousands of years of history. And regenerated, repli like replicated sanctification. It's proven that when you put your faith in Jesus and walk according to his word, God's word, not man-made things, but God's word. Peace comes from that. Joy comes from that. Any other solution that we say, well, no, it's got to be this. Jesus can't pour into that in the sense that he's going to burst it. <laughs> no man-made thing can handle what Jesus wants to do. And it's just such a fresh reminder because right now there's this idea of, well, you know, the church really needs to, to get ready for like a new wineskin. The old things don't work anymore. And they say this all the time, right? And they quote the Bible about it. And when they say that, what they're really saying is, we want our way and not Jesus's way. So let me be clear, though. I, I used to love, Pastor Chuck used to always say, he had this, his uh, proverb that he made up, right? That blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And I'm like, praise the Lord for that. That's a good thing. That means when, when something rubs the order of service, like, well, we always do four songs and then the study and then a song afterwards. We can't break it. If any church does anything different than that, they're, they're not believers, right? They're not incorrect. <laughs> be flexible on those things. Oh, if they have electric guitar, man, they're not. No, be flexible on those things, right? What we don't sacrifice upon the altar of relevancy is the word of God. That's the thing that does not change. 
And what we're being told right now, generally speaking, by even people in the church, is that, hey, man, the, the, the word's too rigid. The word's not inclusive, which is insane because it actually includes everyone in the whole world. John 3.16 says, for the whole world. It's the most inclusive thing I think that's ever been given and written. And think about it. It was written by like mostly Jewish people. <laughs> and it's extended beyond even when they were in existence as a nation. The Jewish writers, if they were the ones that penned it, somehow perfectly penned a thing that changed lives in other countries and other regions when they weren't even in existence as a nation. And we see this because it proves that this isn't just like some man-made thing. This is the word of God. It's the inherent word of God. We don't bend on that. So I'm good with being flexible on so many different things. Whatever we want to be like loose on in the sense of like, hey, we want this style of worship or we want this kind of service program or whatever. Denominations, to some extent, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> but when it comes to the word of God, we don't bend on that. Amen. And see, that's what's being challenged right now. It blows my mind because last week on Easter Sunday, there was a reverend. I don't know the guy's name. I don't care what the guy's name is, but he was out there. He has all kind of Twitter followers, everything. He puts out there that Easter is bigger than the resurrection of Jesus. It transcends greater than that. And even the people that don't believe in Jesus, they can save themselves. He officially does not understand what Easter is, what it means, and what the resurrection was for. Otherwise, Jesus, Jesus was killed by the Father for no reason. Why was he killed? Why, was, why did he resurrect? Why do I need to obey any of it if I can save myself? The religious leaders believe they could save themselves. And Jesus says, man, there's no place for that. There's no way you're ever going to be able to hold and contain the things that I have planned until you put your trust in me. And so, again, we want to be able to be flexible, but we don't want to give away the word of God. We don't want to move away from it. And that's where Jesus said, look, it, I have fulfilled the law. I'm not going to destroy it. But yet he's breaking all the man-made things because the man-made things mean nothing. You stick to the word. And we know this because Jesus taught the word, right? In the, in the temptation, in the wilderness, Deuteronomy three times. Deuteronomy 6.13, 6.16, and 8.3. He just quotes them. And it's like, that's what I'm going to rely upon. Even in this section, in 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 Matthew, he's quoting like Hosea 6, 6. He's constantly quoting Deuteronomy is the most often quoted book of Jesus, which cracks me up. I, I know I mentioned that recently, but it's one of those books that most people skip over. And they're like, when they read through the Bible, they're like, oh, this is the second giving of the law. I already read the first giving. I don't need to read the second giving. It's the book Jesus quoted from the most. And he just relied so heavily on the word. God forbid if the church get away from the word. So I look at that balance. I go, man, we got to be somewhere in the middle on that. Does that make sense? And so we're not going to do all of chapter six, but I do want to touch on the first little section of six. Um, we've seen that Jesus is bringing this new wine, but I love the section because it's the fact that Jesus is going to bring this new Sabbath. Look at verse one and two. It says, now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So another attempt to discredit Jesus and his disciples. You guys are breaking the law. So first it was, you guys are unrighteous because you hang out with unrighteous people. Then it was, hey, you don't look miserable like we do and we're holy and you don't fast enough, right? Now it's, hey, you're clearly breaking the Sabbath. That's what their, their accusation is. But it's interesting because we know it's a Sabbath. It says it's the the wording's kind of weird. It says the second Sabbath after the first. We don't know what Luke actually meant by that. We know he's giving it as a timestamp that meant something to him and his culture. It could be the first Sabbath after Passover. That's why he's calling it the Sabbath after the first, because it would start a new cycle. Or he could just be referring to the Sabbath that happens after the Sabbath he talked about in chapter four, verse 31, because he's writing a report to Theophilus, right? Whatever it is, the point is, hey, this was on a Sabbath. That's the important thing to know. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through this field. And as they're walking through there, they're plucking grain. They're plucking heads of grain off the thing. The disciples are eating because they're hungry. They're walking along. And it's important to remember that the Sabbath was originally prescribed in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work. And it just goes on to list like none of it should be done. Like not your workers, not your animals. Like no one works on that day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hollowed it. 
And so it was prescribed in the law in Exodus 20, and it came from Genesis 2 when, when God rested on the seventh day. Right? So we know there is a God-ordained, God-made Sabbath. But let's talk about what the Sabbath is and what it isn't. The Sabbath is supposed to be a blessed day of rest where you remember the goodness of God. Here are these men going, hey, how dare you rub grain in your hands? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, how do you know I'm not praising the Lord for the grain he just put in my hands? Oh, you can't do this because we've decided as a council that there's 613 laws now. And when you break these, you're now no, no, no longer morally sound or something because you broke the law. Think about the common person that would hear this and go, man, there's no way I could ever please God. I can't even eat <laughs> without upsetting God. There's pastors and preachers out there that make you think that God is so mad at you. And this is what we're talking about. It's like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, God will never be pleased by what you do. Let me be clear. There's a wages of sin, which is death. But it says that he loved us first. Before we ever loved him, he loved us. It doesn't change the reality. If we reject him, there is eternal separation and judgment. That's not the intentions of Jesus Christ. The intention was that all would come to him. When he cried over Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen would gather chicks, but you rejected me. He wanted them, but they rejected him. And the reality is he knows he's lamenting because he's like, dude, you can't come. Now we can't have peace. We can't have joy. You're going to be eternally separated when you refuse me. So we see the difference in the Sabbath here, right? The good Sabbath, the true Sabbath is when we observe it according to the word of God, but the men had jacked it all up. And it's so interesting because it said in Deuteronomy 23, 25, it says, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, which is what they're in, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So what that means is, hey, if there's standing grain, lots of it, help yourself to an extent to feed yourself. Don't get crazy. Don't go get a machine, essentially. Don't get a sickle and chop it down and go resell it out of greed. But if you're hungry, take what you need but you're going to have to work for it. No one's going to come give it to you. <laughs> I think that's interesting, right? This is like to an extent, I don't know. No, we won't go there today. Okay. You got to work. You got to work for what you get, right? It shouldn't just be free handouts for everyone. But the reality is we do want to take care of people. And God's heart was to take care of man's needs. But you see taking care of man's need, but protecting against man's greed. So go eat the grain, but don't cut it down and go resell it and give it to everyone you know. Take what you need and work for it. And so the law itself said, no, this is totally fine what they're doing. So they could have just said, hey, dude, again, Deuteronomy, we're good. But these men were like, no, we've made new laws and you've got to abide to them if you want to be righteous. And if you want to be our Messiah, you've got to live by our agenda, by our box. And so look at what Jesus' response is right here in verse three. But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a wild statement at the end when Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. First, let's back it up a little bit. He says, have you not read, which I love. He's telling the guys that were supposed to be the most knowledgeable people in all the world in their time in the Bible he goes, I, I know you don't understand it. And now I'm questioning if you've even read <laughs> the Bible. And he says, do you not remember when David was hungry and was given the showbread? That comes from 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 9. David's on the run from Saul. And why is he on the run from Saul? Remember, David's the next anointed king. Saul is the current anointed king. And there shouldn't be this attack on David. David should be welcomed as the new king. <laughs> But the people were trying to kill him. And so he went over and he was hungry and he went to Ahimelech, who was the priest, and said, hey, I'm going to die if I don't eat anything. And the priest says, hey, look, it's not lawful for you to eat this, but if you've like, if your heart's right, if you haven't been with women, if you haven't done these things, I'm going to let you have some. And he says, that would be great. And he and the people with him ate of it. Jesus says that. He says, technically, you guys, by your standards right now, would say that Ahimelech was wrong and David should have died. That's a big statement because the Pharisees loved, they revered and adored David. They would look at that story and go, oh, like they should say, oh no, we're acting like the enemies here. We're acting like Saul and his guys trying to kill the new king. 
But instead they see it and they're like, I, they can't even process like the, the spinning rainbow wheel on a Mac, right? They don't even know what to answer to this. Like, oh no, like we do love David and David was allowed to do it, but we're telling you, you can't do it. And we've said that this is like, they're real. They should be realized at this point, you've made laws that, that absolutely go against the heart of God. And so as Jesus is saying this, he says, look it, he ate it and it was lawful. And he says, I'm the son of man. So first of all, he's, that's a messianic title. They knew that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And that the Messiah would be an even greater king than David, who was the greatest king in history up to that point. So he says, if David was allowed to eat it, the Messiah, who is better than David, can eat whatever he wants. I am the Messiah. I get to eat what I want. So that's a big statement, right? Then he says, also, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a claim to deity. I created the Sabbath. I own the Sabbath. It's mine. I do whatever I want. How dare you come to me and tell me, You're, you've made up your own rule? And it doesn't fit a the word of God and it doesn't trump my voice in this matter because I'm God. And this is what we do today as mankind. We say, no, I'm going to tell God what is acceptable. I'm going to tell him what he can and can't do. <laughs> and the Lord says, that's great that you think you can do that. But hey, you're, you're absolutely in opposition to scripture. And also I'm God. Until you realize that you are going to fight me. <laughs> And at the end of the day, you can try to fight me all the way to death. But someday your knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Better to do that now and start to walk in the joy that belongs to the Lord of the Sabbath. To start to walk in that and trust in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so we look at this and see that he is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath, that the joy is found in him. And I, All right. One last thing. Six through 11. Let's do it. You guys good? All right, let's do it. Six through 11. You guys good online? Give me a thumbs up. Give me a yes. You guys are good. We're going for it. So it don't matter. So let's go. All right. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had wit the withered hand, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when they had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And see, in this case, this is the final thing we're looking at today. And just quickly, it fits that whole trend of being the Lord of the Sabbath. What's so tragic about this is that as Jesus goes into the synagogue to teach as he always taught, he goes in there saying, I'm going to teach the people whether there's opposition or not. I'm going to do that which was committed to me by the Father. Those scribes and Pharisees, they had seen the power of Jesus. They had seen the power of the Lord. They've seen him move. They believed that he would do that again, but they did not believe in him. They said, however, he's doing these things. We know he'll perform. The Pharisees would say, if we set a guy in here with a withered hand, we know he's going to heal him. That's insane that they said, we know he has the power. We know he believes he has the authority to do so on the Sabbath, but we don't believe in him. This is just such, a, a, the, I believe, one of the furthest points of disbelief. When you see God working in your presence, but you refuse to believe that he is who he says he is. This happens every day. The human body in itself should prove to us that God is real, that God is true, that someone, I just start at this, that there is a God. Then when you start there and realize, well, who is God? When you get into his word and see that there's no contradiction, that there's no lie in here, that when we apply it to our life, we are made better for it and that we find joy and peace, man, we start to realize that he is God. They're refusing to embrace that, but they see that, man, he is doing powerful things. We just don't want any part of it. And so as they bring this man in, we don't know if he brought, if they brought this man with the withered hand on purpose, like a setup, or if this guy was always at the synagogue, but they knew that Jesus would attempt to heal. They believe that. And that's crazy. That, that breaks my heart. I think there's times when I don't think God wants to heal or God wants to move to where even his opponents at times are like, dude, God does crazy things. Right. And so 
in verse eight, I love it. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts. And we've seen this already. This was mentioned um, prior. It was mentioned in, in Luke 5, 22, when he healed the paralytic man, right before that, he forgave him of his sins. And the men's in their heart, they said, oh, who's Jesus to forgive sins? And it says he perceived their thoughts. At this point, he again, he is seeing what's in their mind, what's in their thoughts. So he's shown the power to actually perform his word. He also has proven that he knows the thoughts that they're thinking, and they still refuse to believe in him. So what he does is he takes this situation where the, essentially what they're trying to do is get Jesus to work on the Sabbath, which they believe would prove him as being not righteous, right? Again, their own man-made thing. That's never what was intended in, in that sense. Like if you glorified God in it, it's, it's acceptable. <laughs> if you don't glorify God, then you shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. I guess that's essentially the, the base of it, right? And so in this case, he tells this man, arise and stand here. So he calls the man up to the room and here's this guy with this withered hand. And then he says to the Pharisees, I love it. He just takes a situation that they had set up to reveal that he's breaking the Sabbath. He's going to turn it on them. He flips the script so perfectly on him. He says, so I ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? So now the whole room is seeing this poor withered dude up here next to Jesus. who's just teaching. He's just teaching the word. In, in Capernaum, in his hometown, right, where he's done great, miraculous things, these haters in the back of the room, he says, hey, everyone turn around and look at these guys. I'm going to ask them a question. Do you think I should do good or evil on the Sabbath? And they're like, how do we even answer that? Like, you're not supposed to do anything, I guess, right? They're like, what do we say? Like, are we supposed to say we actually don't think you should do good things? And you can imagine, they're just like, we don't even want to say anything out loud. And they, there's no response here. There's no, there's nothing. So Jesus almost asks like a rhetorical question. He says, look it, what should you do, good or bad? The original Sabbath was made to glorify God. And when you obey the things of God, it'll never produce evil. It just won't. When you obey the word of God, it's going to produce good. And see, when I look at this, I think, I think it's in Matthew's account, Matthew 12. He says, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So in other words, if you're walking down on the Sabbath, you walk by your sheep, and of course you're going to pull your sheep out and save it. If you're I'm going to use a really extreme example here. If we're hanging out on the Sabbath on a Sunday and my kid falls in a pool who does not know how to swim, you think I'm going to be like, oh, it stinks that it's the Sabbath. I can't get in there and get my kid out. Of course you're going to get in there and get him out. And anyone that thinks you shouldn't is out of their mind. Life was created by God to glorify God. And here's this man who's at the synagogue with his withered hand. And Jesus says, look, this is what I'm going to do. Come on up here. And the man actually comes to Jesus. So he responds to the first thing. Walks up to Jesus. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Think of how many times this guy probably stretched out, tried to stretch out his hand. He was never able to do this until Jesus told him to do it. Until Jesus said it's time to do this. Until Jesus could use it for his glory and the man's blessing to edify the body that was there. This is the right moment when and where he wanted to do this. That man had no idea up to that point why he had a withered hand. He was probably very upset about having a withered hand. Somehow still showed up the synagogue so you can see the ritualistic things there. But this man's going to learn right now that dude, Jesus is bigger than anything I ever imagined. And this man who had had this withered hand couldn't work, right? And it's his right hand. Luke makes a point of saying it's his right hand. He couldn't join the military. That's for sure. You had to be right-handed to be in the military at that time. So couldn't fight, couldn't do that, couldn't just go enlist. <laughs> right hand was the hand of power, right? So like, in other words, this guy's kind of shamed the fact that he has a withered right hand. And so, and I love it. Luke's a physician. He's very specific. He's like, this is right hand. We're not just talking about a hand. It's his right hand. And he's like, this is, this is what's happening. He comes up there and Jesus has stretched it out. And when he stretches it out, it says it was restored as whole as the other. And I think that's interesting. It doesn't say it was uh, made well. It was restored. To restore something, like you restore an old car, it once was good. And then it got old and then you made it good again. This seems that this man didn't always have this issue in his life, but at some point his hand got jacked up and that's tragic. Cause it's one thing it's been said, like it's one thing to be born blind. It's another thing to have your sight and then to lose it. This man was in dire need of healing and man, he was going to synagogue week after week with this hand, never getting changed. And if the Pharisees had their way man, they, they, they could care less if this guy gets healed. They're just trying to accuse Jesus. And when Jesus heals this man, 
Imagine his excitement. Just he's the same joy that Matthew is proclaiming to his friends about finding Jesus. You got to imagine this man says, I can't believe it. I get to live a restored life now. But what do the Pharisees do? Verse 11, it says, they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And see that right there to me defines empty ritualistic religion. When I lose my power, when I lose my agenda because of the moving of God, it makes me mad. That's what ritualistic religion says. But Jesus says, I've come here to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come here to restore life. I've come here to heal those who are willing to come to me and listen and obey my word. He said, come up here to me. The guy came to him and he said, stretch out your hand. He, and he obeyed him. Come to Jesus, obey Jesus, and you will receive restoration. Amen. And that's the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.